What's the only weekly wrap-up of the top compliance and ethics stories? It is This Week in FCPA with Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. Each week, Tom and Jay highlight 10 stories which caught their collective eye, talk about sports and movies, highlight top podcasts, and preview their upcoming events. Join This Week in FCPA each week for a one-stop review of the week's compliance and ethics highlights. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Stories on This Week in FCPA include environmental crime enforcement under the Biden administration, Jason Myers on what the Masters means to him, policies and procedures are not enough in compliance, the PCAOB charged with a discrimination lawsuit, what's the role of AI in compliance? What is audit field work and why is it important? The DOJ increase in cross-border enforcement under the Biden administration? Is moral leadership an art? Is the FTC gearing up on enforcement? And more on ESG. All these stories, podcasts, events, and a special guest, all on This Week in FCPA. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, together with Jay Rose and Mr. Monitors himself for This Weekend FCPA, episode 249, the whistleblower edition. Big news in whistleblower information and a huge SEC award this week as Jay and I are back to look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories, which caught our collective eye. We are going to be joined by special guest. Asha Palmer to talk about the upcoming Converge 21 workshop edition. So, Jay, can we hop right into the whistleblower uh, information this week? Tell me what the number 50 million means, Tom. Well, it's the number I'm striving to sell the Compliance Podcast Network for. Uh, But uh, short of that, you may be talking a more temporal, temporal aspect, which was the SEC announced uh, a dual whistleblower award, meaning two whistleblowers got the award this week. That's two, as in two, T-O-O, T-O-O, T-O, and the number two. And you could probably even go the Roman numeral two, however you say that in Latin. There we go. Uh, $50 million. Um, what, uh, what struck you about that award uh, other than the size of it, Jay? Well, I think what you brought up, Tom, was very key that it took two people to do this. And you've got to imagine what kind of systemic thing has been happening if you have two relators who are both combined to bring to uh, justice a matter that uh, pays them both $50 million. And I think if you do the numbers, you could say, well, you know, was was this a five hundred million dollar fraud, or what percentage did they get about it? But one of the things with the whistleblower program is that there's total anonymity, so it's really hard to find out uh, who the company is and what the numbers that were at play. But if you just look at fifty million, it's a huge figure. So, Jay, coupled with the fifty million dollar award, we also had. Um a release of a report from NAVEX, 
this week that Jacqueline Jaeger, our colleague over at Compliance Week, wrote about. Uh, and they looked at whistleblower information over the past year. Uh, they had some interesting findings. If I could uh, step back and, and uh, have our audience think about the ECI 2021 Global Business Ethics Survey, there we had employees indicating they felt more pressure to cut corners, and whistleblower retaliation was uh, really through the roof up at, uh, I think, at 79%. Uh, so obviously those figures are troubling. But what uh, Navex found was that um, ret- uh, retaliation dropped uh, to 1% of the reports received, and Carrie Penman said uh, the drop is notable when considered against a focus on social justice, but she questioned whether in times of uncertainty, people are more fear, fearful. Now, this was reported retaliation. So um, Carrie uh, suggested, Carrie's the uh, uh, EVP at um, Navex and also their chief compliance officer, this is a good time to take a look at your retaliation prevention programs, training on the issues of retaliation and helping managers and supervisors recognize retaliation. Also, Jay, earlier today, I was a part of the ECI 21 Impact Conference, where I moderated a panel uh, which discussed whistleblowers, uh, whistleblower information, whistleblower legal issues. We had Greg Keating from the legal legal perspective, and we had Dr. Kyle Welch, who, of course, is well known for his academic research into whistleblowers and reporting systems, and Pat Harned, uh, president of uh, ECI, and they talked about uh, not only the retaliation, but the damage from retaliation. I think that's probably well known. Um, And uh, more importantly, Greg had uh, some really good thoughts on how to train for and help to prevent retaliation, and he thinks it's really the frontline managers, and that he advocates uh, significant training for the frontline managers on not simply how to accept a report, or where to go to the report, um, uh, or where to send the report to, and how to support the whistleblower. Uh, and then he also added there should be incentivi- incentivization for frontline supervisors by the number of reports they uh, bring in, and, and more importantly, the number of reports uh, they pass up the line. And your culture uh, needs to emphasize that you honor and support people who step up, and this includes either bystanders or secondary reports uh, as well. So if someone reports they saw something uh, that happened to somebody else, uh, that is significant information as well. So lots of great information about whistleblowers this week, the NAVEX report, the ECI panel, the whistleblower award. And uh, Jay, I think it's uh, fair to say that this is going to be a, a big impetus of the federal government going forward. Greg Keating gave the figure earlier today that the SEC has awarded over $1.1 billion now in whistleblower awards. It ain't going away, and it's only going to increase. The uh, AML Law of 2020 had an expanded whistleblower section for um, shell companies and reporting anonymous corporations uh, to OFAC and the Department of Treasury. There's several other. Uh, there's an antitrust whistleblower program, of course, the SEC whistleblower program, And what Kyle Welch emphasized was, this is information. This is information your company needs because it may be that you've engaged in a violation. It may be a legal violation. It may be a violation of your own internal policies and procedures, but it's something that every company needs to uh, try to garner 
And he was quite stark. Look, if 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 a reporter tries to report and 90% try to report internally and they're turned away, they can go to the government. And the government's eager to access that information. There's an entire plaintiff's whistleblower bar uh, set up to process whistleblower claims from the legal perspective and that this could uh, really hurt a company down the road. So lots of interesting information. And uh, I think, Jay, everyone understands when you say don't retaliate, but uh, certainly from the information from NAVAX, uh, ECI, and then the panel we saw earlier today, that uh, there's specific steps you can take. So I'm very hopeful in this area. So, Tom, even though it's only uh, April 22nd and we are on the whistleblower edition for episode 249, should we be so bold to say that 2021 may be the year of the whistleblower? It could well be, Jay. All right. Well, I'm going to use that uh, to jump into the first story we have this week. And we're going to uh, hang on while I vamp for a second. We're going to an article that comes to us from the Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Governance. It's written by Paul Washington and Rebecca Ray. And the question they ask is, how boards can get human capital management right in five not-so-easy steps? At the outset of the pandemic, employees were top priority of boards, second only to continued liquidity. Now that the SEC's new disclosures rules on human capital management could further reinforce the focus of work workers at least temporarily. Boards can ensure that companies satisfy the new SEC reporting requirements, but return to the traditional approach of providing general, or they can view recent events as a catalyst to make the workforce a sustained strategic focus of the board. Boards are struggling with how deeply to be involved with human capital management. Can they achieve the appropriate level of board engagement and disclosure on HCM, focusing on strategy and key drivers rather than day-to-day activity? They will not only drive long-term value, but they can also provide a template for how boards can tackle ESG areas going forward. The authors share five practical steps to help boards make HCM a strategic business advantage, and it's based on a recent report by the conference board called Brave New World, Creating Long-Term Value Through Human Capital Management and Disclosure. So here are five ways to get HCM right. Number one, develop a human capital strategy linked to your business strategy. Adopt a more strategic approach to HCM, which requires, no surprise, a strategy. Boards should ask management to develop a strategy that sets forth a plan for taking the company from the workforce it currently has to say what it will need in five years' time. Two, clarify, codify, and coordinate your board's role. Boards should also work with management to clearly define their role with respect to HCM. Three, confirm that the board has the right information it needs. Companies have an abundance of HCM data at their proposal. The key is working with management to figure out what matters. Four, ensure what boards have correct composition and resources. In recent years, boards have sought to expand their own capabilities through attracting directors with expertise in areas such as technology and finance. At the same time, when evaluating a board's makeup, a company should consider adding human capital management expertise. And five, double down on the company's story to ensure it is communicated consistently and effectively. 
One of the most daunting challenges is determining what HCM information should be provided to multiple stakeholders. Some people see the new SEC rule on HCM disclosures as a harbinger of additional mandatory ESG disclosures and associated board responsibilities to come. Here are some final thoughts. Don't rush it. No matter how well-informed or well-meaning you are, boards will inevitably have less comprehensive and nuanced information than management. Two, ESG disclosures and financial statements are just a small part of the overall picture. Indeed, they're just a part of the disclosure tale, and it shouldn't wag the business dog. Next, companies' disclosures should evolve, placing the appropriate emphasis on non-ESG topics such as human capital requires a lot of work by the board. While it's important to be conscious of various external ESG reporting frameworks and rating agencies, boards should focus on what works best for the company. It can get easy, it may be easy to be lost in the multiplicity of conflicting metrics suggested by reporting frameworks. While they are a helpful guide, each company should decide what standards it wants to adhere to. With the vast disruption brought about by COVID-19, boards have an opportunity to take a fresh look at their company's workforce to see how it fits in the company's future business plan and the board's role in ensuring that the firm's workplace can be a key driver and a beneficiary of that success. Back to you, Tom. So, Jay, we had our first, uh, or not our first, but another award or rather enforcement action by the New York Department of Financial Services. This involved the company National Securities Corporation, and they uh, failed to implement a multi-factor authentication or reasonable equivalent for security, failed to notify the DFS of two cybersecurity events, and falsely certified compliance with the uh, uh, relevant regulatory standard. So the uh, DFS is really leading the enforcement effort around data protection in the United States, but since we have no national law. And I was really interested in the article that appeared in New York University's program on corporate compliance and enforcement, or rather their compliance and enforcement blog, they had three key takeaways. One, that um, you need both uh, two-factor authentication for certain gatekeepers or equivalent approved by a CISO, a CISO. You need to notify the DFS, even if you uh, notify other regulators um, of a cybersecurity event, if you're regulated by the DFS. You need to deal um, effectively with obligations around your third-party applications and personnel. And uh, the DFS views certifications as requiring full compliance. So um, those last two points, I think, are critical, Jay, that if you certify your compliance with the law, you better be in compliance with the law. And that means the full law, full compliance. But also your obligations around third-party applications uh, and personnel that um, many companies will claim uh, they, they don't have visibility that far in, but uh, the DFS says that you have to um, have that visibility going forward. Great. Next up, Tom, we've got something from Corporate Compliance Insights. This comes from a good friend of the podcast, Jim Deloach, and Jim's talking about strategic resilience. Will it be a key to the post-pandemic future? Most risk management strategies look through the rearview mirror, but it's time to focus on the road ahead. As the global economy remains in flux, most management strategies remain backward looking. 
Risk needs to adopt strategic resilience strategies if it's to stay ahead of the inevitable changes to come. Strategic resilience is likely at the root of the director's concern due to three issues. First, there is the uncertainty around the pandemic and its impact on market behavior. Second, there's a current and post-pandemic competitive environment and shared piece of change, pace of change rather, and the digital economy. And third, most performance metric are retrospective in nature, recording history as it occurs and focusing on the question of how are we doing instead of the question Jim says we should be asking, where are we going and can we get there? So how do you adopt strategic resilient practices? When linked to critical assumptions relating to external market factors and key risks relevant to the strategy, lead metrics offer an early warning of market opportunities, as well as an increased or emerging risk warranting immediate attention in the C-suite and boardroom. To illustrate an organization with multiple operating units, see selected strategic documents and business plans to develop a profile of the critical risk around key initiatives. Many and organizations' most critical risks are driven, at least in part, by the digital economy. After confirming the risk profile with the executive team, conceptual alternatives for reporting on strategic executions are evaluated and approach selected that address several objectives. One, provide transparency into strategic execution risks. Two, augment quarterly strategic reviews to enable timely action to address risks of, to achievement of strategic goals and to keep the company on track with strategic milestones. Next, identify signs of stress on the business. And finally, supplement the CEO's periodic strategy updates and discussions with the board. Based on the strategic risk profile, potential metrics are now identified with an emphasis on lead metrics, not intended to replace the lag performance metrics currently in place, but lead metrics are focused on trends and warning signs that the business model may be under threat from. The metrics and underlying thresholds are used to develop indices for various risk categories to trend quarterly for use in communicating with the executive team. Trending reports should answer three questions. Are we riskier this quarter than we were last quarter? Are we entering a riskier time in delivering our strategy? And if so, why? Questions for the executive team and boards. Here's three final questions for senior executive and boards of directors to consider based on risks inherent in company operations. First, are we assessing the company's execution of strategy in a comprehensive manner with a forward-looking discipline linked to critical strategic assumptions and risks? Second, are these capabilities working effectively to inform strategic decision-making? Is management setting the tone for strategic resilience through actions and words? And in conclusion, would we characterize the company's decision-making processes as high-velocity, high-quality? Does the process keep things simple, flatten the organization, and emphasize taking the appropriate risks, failing fast, and listening to feedback? Back to you, Tom. So, Jay, uh, next up is an interesting article that I came across in the MIT Sloan Management Review. And one of the things that we learned from the ECI uh, 2021 Global Business Ethics Survey was that employees felt greater pressure to cut corners. Well, this uh, Sloan article asked uh, the question of what are the cost of unethical requests? And they put together some, um, uh, set up some experiments, and it turns out that their actual business cost, 
this is, of course, separate in part from any legal or uh, regulatory cost, which we typically focus on. Uh, certainly in our section on whistleblowers, that was the focus. But I thought this was really significant because it said that uh, when employees are asked to do bad things, their work gets bad, basically. And if you have an employee that's ethical and wants to do the right thing and you ask them to cut corners, uh, they're, they're not going to do that very well. So it was very interesting to see that their real business costs for asking employees to uh, engage in unethical behavior. And certainly when you pair that with uh, the data from the ECI uh, 2021 Global Business Ethics Survey and the remarks uh, this morning from Greg Keating, uh, Pat Harned, and Dr. Cal Welch, you see that there are real costs to asking employees to cut corners. Uh, and even if it's just a hint, uh, the article is very clear that uh, it can be very subtle uh, it's not, it doesn't have to be a direct order. If you just sort of uh, say, well, no one rid me of this meddlesome priest thing, uh, things can get bad. So uh, very interesting, and I thought very significant for every compliance practitioner. So next up, Tom, uh, you entitled this To Russia With Love from a friend of the podcast, Mike Volkov, on the U.S. ramping up sanctions for Russia. Uh, we also, uh, for a deeper dive, you can check out this week's episode of Embargoed on the Compliance Podcast Network. And I think I just said this comes from Mike's uh, own blog, Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Biden administration ratchets up Russian sanctions. The Biden administration announced new and significant trade sanctions against Russia. The action was long expected given the Biden administration's criticism of Russia and was a comprehensive response to the country's interference in the 2020 U.S. election, its solar wind cyber attack, and its ongoing occupation of Crimea and threatening addition of troops along the U.K. border. President Biden issued a new executive order targeting the harmful foreign activities of the Russian government, authorizing a broad, a broad range of sanctions authorities in response to the Russian activities designed to undermine free and fair dem democratic elections, to engage in and facilitate malicious cyber activities against the United States, use transnational corruption to influence foreign governments, pursue extraterritorial activities targeting dissidents and journalists, and violate well-established principles of international law. The White House also took steps to expel 10 Russian diplomats in D.C., including Russian intelligent representatives for their roles in the cyber hack and election meddling. President Biden spoke to Pres Russian President Vladimir Putin to preview the actions. Not to be left out, the Treasury Department issued special sanctions under new executive authority. These new sanctions bar U.S. financial institutions from participating in the primary market for bonds issued by Russia's central bank and other financial institutions. The Treasury Department also sanctioned six Russian technology companies that support the Russian intelligence cyber program, along with 32 individuals. The White House also named Russian Foreign Intelligence Service, a.k.a. SVR, as a primary actor for SolarWinds hacked. They sanctioned individuals, including Alexei Gromov, first deputy chief of staff who was previously designated under an executive order, and the Treasury Department adopted further sanctions against Yevgeny Progazin, a Russian financier. In addition, the Treasury Department designated several com companies that were also associated with Progozin. 
Finally, the Treasury Department designated Constantine Kilimnik, a name you might recall from the Mueller investigation. He's a Russian and Ukrainian political consultant associated with Russian intelligence services. So it's a pretty big rebuke of Russia and what they've been doing to us for the last four years. Back to you, Tom. So, Jay, you may remember the ComEd imbroglio involving the Speaker of the House of the state of Illinois, uh, multi-million dollar bribes paid, ComEd seriously damaged uh, both legally and reputationally. And this article uh, comes to us from Vincent Wu in the Global Anti-Corruption blog, and he takes a look at uh, really the the bribe-receiver side of this and the Speaker of the House of Illinois and how he used tactics and strategies that he had successfully employed as speaker, uh, where the maxim absolute power corrupts absolutely, to really browbeat ComEd once he had him on the hook and they'd paid a bribe. Uh, he knew now the question was not if, but just how much more. And he was able to place his cronies on the ComEd board so that effectively uh, he criminalized or, or definitely negatively impacted the board of ComEd. And it's a great lesson for the compliance practitioner, Jay, because, of course, this happened inside the United States. And most of our colleagues typically think about outside the United States, which is the focus of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. But it reemphasized the need, um, along with First Energy and its uh, sister state of Ohio, that you have to have robust compliance inside the United States and in all your business actions. So a good uh, reminder of ComEd and some really interesting um uh, analysis by Vincent Wu of the overlap of how political power not simply uh, corrupts, but how it actually can corrupt businesses as well. Thanks, Tom. Next up, we've got a uh, part two that's coming to us from Notre Dame's Deloitte Center for Ethical Leadership. Brett Beasley's writing here, and he's talking about stories to make your values stick. When it comes to building character and ethical cultures, stories aren't entertainment. They're essential. How would you describe your organization and your leadership? You might use terms like data-driven or results-driven, but what about story-driven? If not, you may be missing out on some potential benefits to yourself and your team. Research suggests that when it comes to the important task of instilling and living values, stories should be the centerpiece of your strategy. Organizations struggle to build and maintain an organizational culture that puts ethics first. Culture is one of those areas where you never declare victory. After all, an organization's culture depends on its people. As employees leave an organization and new hires come aboard, there's a constant need to instill a clear sense of how we do things around here. Recent research suggests that stories are a uniquely powerful way to integrate ethics into the onboarding process. Stories are featured one of two types of characters, either leaders in the organization or low-level employees. Additionally, there are two types of plots. The character either upheld or violated the organization's values, or researchers were able to follow employees from each group over time. Gathered data on the employee's subsequent helping behaviors and unethical actions were used to determine if the stories had any tangible effects. The findings were simple. Stories about values are incredibly valuable. The use of stories had a tremendous impact that showed up in employees' behavior. Researchers discovered that some stories about values are more valuable than others. 
stories about leaders doing the right thing, help new hires learn the value of that an organization espouses. But the stories that seem to have more effect were low-level employees who played a bigger role in shaping new hires and actual behaviors. This was largely because new hires identify with lower-level employees more like them than with executives. Let's look at stories and character. It's not just culture. Research also suggests that stories are indispensable for shaping individual characters. Many scholars now insist we should understand our moral lives in terms of a story or a narrative. One of the first and most influential scholars to make this claim was Notre Dame moral philosopher Alistair McIntyre. In his 1981 study, McIntyre claimed that a human being is essentially a storytelling animal. To live a moral life, he argued, we have to think about our life as a whole and thinking of it as a constantly evolving story. To test his claims, Dan McAdams in Northwestern had collected thousands of life stories about people who live what psychologists called a generative rather than stagnant lives. And in fact, they tend to see their lives as a particular kind of story, not just a series of loosely connected episodes. Here are five themes that are consistent. One, they experienced some early advantage in life that made them want to help the less fortunate. Two, they developed sensitivity to oppression, inequality, or other forms of suffering. Three, they were given a strong moral framework. Four, they experienced negative events and thought to transform them into positive ones. And five, they aimed to improve others' lives. So now how do we put this in practice? Just don't state values, but share stories. First, be strategic about storytelling. Not every moment in the life of an organization calls for a story. Second, know your story and tell it. To build a story-driven organization, start by becoming story-driven yourself. Everyone likes a leader who can tell a good story to inject life into a meeting or provide a clear, colorful example. But research shows that stories are valuable for much more than entertainment and clarification, especially stories about values. The road to moral character and an ethical culture runs through the imagination, and stories may be most powerful vehicle we have for traveling it. Please join us next week when we check in for the final installment, which will explore practical ways we can cultivate our moral imagination. Tom? So, Jay, um, next up, we have a really interesting piece from Risk and Compliance Europe, and they talk about the role of complexity in compliance. And when I saw the title of the article, I thought it was going to be similar to uh, the Johnson Controls FCPA enforcement action from a few years back, where the uh, accounting in the Chinese business unit was so convoluted that the company couldn't figure out what they were doing. And my response was, if your internal auditors can't figure out what a business unit is doing on their, in their uh, financial uh, records, you need to shut down that business unit. But that's not the focus of this article. The focus on this of this article is about data and technology. And um, the authors really posit that the more complex you make data and the more complex you make data analysis, you have the uh, uh, situation where basically uh, employees will check out and they will sit back and say, well, it's it was the process. It wasn't me. And... Um, this, I think, is a really important point that uh, people and particularly data scientists are talking about bias in your data. But here it's what happens when you have digitalization and 
if you have advanced digitalization, uh, our employees going to really lose contact with that human touch with their stakeholders. And, and I really thought that was interesting because um, certainly in the financial sector, uh, there's many fintech pro- products and solutions, but the authors caution that this may lead to what they call moral distancing and moral regression as complexity tends to blur our sense of responsibility when you say, well, it's, it's, it's the system, it's the procedure, it's AI, it's something else. And that we need to be cognizant of that. And uh, we often talk about, uh, well, I mean, I've never gotten the, the memo that Skynet's become self-aware. Perhaps you have in Southern <laughs> California, but uh, there's always got to be the human touch and there's always got to be a um, human interface to oversee the data. But this really points to the need for the human touch so that the humans involved don't rely too much on the AI and have this moral distancing and moral regression. Thanks, Tom. We're going to close up the story section with asking, can the government make us more ethical? Jeff Kaplan explores in his own Conflict of Interest blog. In preferences change in behavioral ethics, can states create ethical people? Yuval Feldman and Yotam Kaplan of Bar-Elan University write, Law and economic scholarship suggests that in appropriate cases, the law can improve people's behavior by changing their preference. For instance, the law can curve discriminatory hiring processes, by rather practices, by providing employers with information that may change their preference towards discriminatory hiring. Supposedly, if employers no longer prefer one class of employee to another, they will simply stop discriminating with no need for future legal intervention. The current paper adds some depth to this familiar analysis by introducing the insights of behavioral ethics into the law and economics literature on preference change. Behavioral ethics research shows that wrongdoing often originates with semi-deliberative or non-deliberative cognitive processes. These findings suggest that the process of preference change through the use of law is markedly more complicated and nuanced. They further write, organizations such as schools and workplace can be more effective than law in the state in inducing ethical awareness and changing implicit attitudes. Such organizations offer framework, intense social frameworks in which people spend a significant amount of time in close proximity to guiding rules and supervisory authorities. Such organizations are also allowed to engage in practices of habit formation that we might not tolerate when it comes to the government. This means the law can change ethical preferences more effectively, not by trying to engage with people's awareness directly, but by requating, by creating requirements that will change relevant organizations and incentivize those organizations in turn to engage directly with people's preferences and awareness. Indeed, with the promulgation of detailed compliance program evaluation standards over the last year by the Department of Justice, we see what is probably a more compelling use than ever before of sanctions to promote businesses to take the type of intense engagements described above. It's important to consider, as the authors have, how ethical forces in one sphere of activity can impact the ethicality of others. Finally, in considering government's roles in promoting ethical thought and deed, it's worth recalling that Justice Louis Brandeis once said, our government is the potent the omnipresent teacher, for good or for ill, it teaches the whole people by example. 
While Brandeis was speaking about violations of the law, the point seems just as applicable to ethics. Back to you, Tom. So, Jay, next up, we have Asha Palmer. Asha is EVP at Conversant, and she heads the Converge uh, conferences, and she is here to talk to us about Converge 21, the workshop edition. So, Asha, first of all, uh, welcome, and uh, thanks so much for taking the time to visit with us. Yeah, thank you, Tom and Jay. It's great to be here. So, Asha, uh, Conversant is is doing something new this year. They're having a workshop edition. So could you tell us what the genesis of that was and how this will be different really than any other conference you or I or others of our listeners have attended? Yeah, thanks, Tom. You know, after our Converge 20 last year, we left with a lot of energy and a lot of ideas. Um, but what was the next step? What, what, did we, what could we do to effectuate and to, you know, get moving on the great ideas and concepts that we talked about during this wonderful conference? And we listened to the feedback of people who were there who said, I love everything that you talked about, but tell me how to do it. <laughs> tell me how can I apply that to my program? You know, behavioral science, we've been talking about it for probably five to 10 years now, right? How can I tangibly apply that to my program and to move the ethics movement forward? So that's what the workshop edition is. It's about doing the work necessary to move the ethics movement forward. And we're going to do that work together. And it's always much more fun to do work with friends. Well, Asha, I know you've been uh, intimately involved in putting the program together. Are there maybe one or two, I, I want to say, I would say all your children are your favorite, but are there maybe one or two that uh, uh, you're really looking forward to? You know, I, I'm not going to pick, right? The same, same answer as if you asked me what my favorite child was, right? They're all so different um, and they're all really great. You know, they have different formats. Some use, you know, co-collaboration tools like Miro. Others use case studies and, you know, detective questions. And, you know, we, we tried to make it fun so that doing the work was was exciting. Um, you know, we're going to talk about ESG, right? What is ESG? How does compliance and ethics fit into ESG? Um, you know, I asked, can we make data privacy fun? So we're going to make data privacy fun. Um, you know, data-driven decisions, right? What does that mean? How do you apply that? What story can you tell? You know, a lot of the topics that you guys just discussed in your news section, we are going to operationalize for the ethics and compliance community, and then teach tips and tricks that will help us accelerate. Um, I will mention one more workshop that I think is fun. Um, you see the key thing being fun, because I do believe that the work that we do in ethics and compliance is fun. Um, we're going to think like a marketer. You know, what makes us buy those late night, you know, t-shirts on, on the internet or otherwise that we don't actually need, right? Marketers know how to get in the hearts and minds of people. We in ethics and compliance want to operationalize that as well for the key information that we, you know, give to our constituents that we really need to protect ourselves, our business, and our world. Well, Asha, we're going to link to the registration and information to Converge 21 Workshop Edition in our show notes, but I was wondering if anyone's listening and just would like to go now, could you tell them where they could go for information and registration? 
Of course I can. It is converge. I mean, I'm sorry. It's conversant.com forward slash converge. So conversant.com forward slash converge. And did we mention that it's free? Completely free to practitioners. These two hour deep dives will really, you'll walk away with tangible things you can apply to your program and all for free. Well, I, for one, am greatly looking forward to it. I'm on a couple of panels and I've looked, I've really enjoyed writing up the exercises and other information. And I look forward to uh, hearing your thoughts as well, Asha. And thank you very much for uh, taking the time to visit with us. Thank you for having me. See you at Converge. See you then. Thank you. Bye. All right, Jay. We are now on to podcasts and events. So, what? okay, go what? ahead. No, go ahead. <laughs> podcasts and events. Uh, one of the most fun uh, podcasts I'm doing uh, over the uh, this next week will be my final one is um, The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Um, I have to stop myself every time because I'll date myself by saying I think of the Falcon and the Snowman movie. So the um, Falcon and Snowman currently streaming on Disney Plus. Uh, Megan Doherty, a co-founder at One uh, Stone Creative, and I are doing a podcast series. We just posted episode five this week, which was Truth. Friday night, episode six, the ultimate uh, final episode drops. So we'll be uh, podcasting on that next week. Uh, on the Compliance Life, Jay, uh, as you know, this, this month I'm visiting with Jonathan Kellerman on his journey uh, to the CCO chair. And in episode three, he talked about um, going, getting uh, into the chair, moving from a consultant's role uh, in what he called was an uh, uh, offer he couldn't refuse sort of situation. So uh, I know you and your colleagues at Affiliated Monitors hosted uh, part two of a great uh, two-part series. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure, I can definitely give you the highlights, Tom. Uh, Don Stern and Eric Feldman, who are two of our managing directors, uh, continued part two of a podcast with our special guest host, Rod Rosenstein, the former Deputy Attorney General, and he's currently a partner at King & Spaulding. Uh, The first part of the podcast, which dropped two weeks ago, was the past, the present, and the future of compliance and now we take up the other side of the corn, coin and we look at the past, present, and future of monitoring. And as always in our podcast, Rod and Eric will continue and will conclude with key takeaways at the end of the podcast. Um, next up, Tom, we've got you've given the converge information already, but just in case you're going through the um, show notes, there's a link right there to click and sign up. And Asha did say it's free, so there's really no excuse for you not to go. Corporate Compliance Insights releases a new ebook, the FCPA Year in Review by our own compliance evangelist, Tom Fox. Again, in the show notes, we have a link and you can get a copy of the book right here. And that is also available at the incredible price of free. Tom, we've got one thing that does cost some money. Can you tell us about the Compliance Handbook 2nd Edition? Sure. Uh, Compliance Handbook 2nd Edition is available on pre-sale with a discount from its publisher, LexisNexis. I've linked to it in the show notes. You can use Fox 25 to get a 25% discount. It is uh, uh, humbly, I would suggest, and submit uh, the single best one-author volume on compliance programs, how to design, create, and implement a best practices compliance programs uh, literally from A to Z. So check out the Compliance Handbook 2nd Edition. Jay, if I could add to the information about Converge 21, the workshop edition, 
That'll be held May 5th and 6th. There will be both a Europe and U.S. component. So if you're an insomniac and get up at 4 a.m., not naming any names of the two of us, but um, and you want to participate, you can do so once again at no charge. If you're uh, like uh, Mr. Monitors himself, who tends to uh, not be an insomniac, at least early in the morning, maybe late at night, uh, you can uh, check out the U.S. Uh, edition of it. So, uh, Jay, uh, you want to take us home? Definitely. Uh, on behalf of Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, who can be reached at tfox at tfoxlaw.com, and myself, Jay Rosen, a.k.a. Mr. Monitor, you can reach me at the initial Jay Rosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. And we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA, episode 249, for the week ending April 23rd, 2021, the Whistleblower Edition. We hope you and yours are safe, that you have a great weekend, and we look forward to seeing you next week when we speak about this week and FCPA. Take care. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can reach Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can reach me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you will join Jay and I again next week where we take up some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories, talk about upcoming webinars, and review key podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network, which premiered for the week. Thanks again for listening. Uh, Please join us on our live stream on the Q&A. We'd love to interact with you. It goes up on LinkedIn and Facebook at 4 p.m. Central every Thursday. You can engage with us then. We look forward to visiting with you again next week, and thanks again for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.